So there I am. I don't have no job, have no place. Uh, lost all my stuff. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wound up going down to River Valley, and this is probably the second time in my life that I really contemplated suicide. I actually, I actually wrote, I wrote letters and I said, I'm sorry that I, I did all these things. I'm sorry that I screwed up things for you guys. And I went down to the River Valley. I had an old disposable razor that I took with me. This is Michael. One year ago, Michael was trapped in addiction and on the street with no job, no home, and no hope. But now, Michael's life is dramatically different, and his life is proof that hope really does begin with a meal. A, a, a meal can lead to something incredible. Uh, it's what started with me. One meal in the hall met me up with one worker who stopped and cared enough to ask about how I was doing, led me to coming to the program, led me to getting in touch with God and my maker and led to me being grateful and finding a purpose for my life and meaning to who and what I am. You can't put a price tag on that. Michael has spent the last seven months in Breakout, Hope Mission's addiction recovery program for men. And today, on a special edition of Hope Stories, you'll hear Michael's incredible experience of transformation, growing up with the scars of his parents' alcohol use, struggling with his own addictions as an adult, planning a suicide attempt only to be foiled by an inkless pen, living on the streets with nowhere to go, and finally, finding hope. And all of it possible because someone, someone like you, believed that Michael deserved hope. I'm Brenton Dreger, and this is Hope Stories. Michael was the youngest of four children. He's grateful for his parents and his upbringing, but says his family faced significant challenges. As early as I can remember, right from the get-go, you know, it's sad to say, but there was, uh, I was having to deal with alcohol-fueled fights, uh, middle of the nights, any day of the week. Didn't matter if it was Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Friday. Uh, you know, it was common to wake up, be snapped out of your sleep in the middle of the night with mom and dad screaming and uh, at each other and yelling and uh, fighting. So I think from eight years old, when I was at least I was old enough to get around on my own, I was uh, breaking up fights and calling cops uh, in the middle of the nights, uh, trying, to, trying to pick up my parents. I, had, uh, I was always a small kid, uh, and so it was, it was hard. Uh, a lot of times, my whole childhood, I felt powerless and frustrated and afraid all the time, uh, stressed out at a level that you really don't get used to or understand until you look back on it and uh, it, uh, it's, it, was, it was really hard. Uh, a lot of times I'd be trying to drag my mom across the floor. I'd be trying to pick her up, but I couldn't. My mom was a, a heavy, heavier set woman and I was just a rail. Childhood experiences like Michael's are a familiar theme among community members who come to Hope Mission. And for those who embark on a journey of recovery, there's a lot to unpack and come to terms with. 
As Michael looks back, he's well aware of the pain he's carried, but he's also grateful to have grown up in a home with two parents, his sisters, and brother. Michael says his parents did the best they could with what they had been given. His mom was part of the 60s scoop and grew up going to a residential school. His dad's childhood had a lot of instability, and he left school in grade 8. From, so from what I know, they were both just trying to make things work. They both unfamiliar with what a family meant, what it took, what it required. Uh, and they just tried, tried to, both had children at the young ages. Uh, uh, they came here with nothing and he, he worked his, his way up, got an apartment eventually, you know, worked his way into a full-time job, you know, and then we came along and, and he started with nothing, came here with no idea how to raise a family or do anything and they made it work. So I, I take my hat off to him. I wouldn't be here if he hadn't had the courage and, and, and the fortitude to do the hard thing and keep going with nothing and no training and no, you know, no clue as to what's going on. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was always part of the nobody's group, last one picked. Uh, I learned to hang out with, uh, you know, what you would call the nerdier kids, uh, the kids who didn't belong, uh, the flunkies and whatnot, I, just whoever I could at least befriend and hang out with. Uh, I probably had like three best friends I can remember through all my school years. Uh, it wasn't easy. I was awkward. My parents didn't have much money, so I, I had bowling shirts and corduroy pants and giant glasses. Uh, <laughs> man, I, I look back, I just laugh, I shake my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, no wonder he was. No wonder you had no girlfriends or friends, like that's just the way it was. Uh, but I, like I say, I bless my parents. I mean, they did whatever they had to do. Michael started drinking as an adult. He says he liked how it helped him relax. With alcohol, he could talk to anybody. He could be anybody. That was always the biggest appeal for me for alcohol. People say, why did you start drinking? And like, was it to mask something? Was it to... I never started drinking because of anybody else. I, I, I never, like, I didn't drink, drink, drink until I was 20. I mean, I had my first drink when I was 18 because your, your friends take you out and get you drunk. That's what people do. But then that was it. I never drank again for weeks. I, it wasn't a priority. It wasn't a thought. I didn't care about it. Uh, I went to Nate for a year, and I didn't drink when I was at Nate. I didn't care about it. I didn't think about it. I started smoking marijuana, but that was it. But when it started, I'd say when it was when I started working full-time at a, at a major warehouse and I was 20, working eight on, eight off, and you drink on the weekends to relax because uh, you like it, because it relaxes you, and you think you can enjoy the football game better when you have a couple. And But then I started meeting people at bars, and all of a sudden, you'd be at home by yourself, and you can't think of anything except for when you're going to get to see so-and-so next. Oh, I can't wait to go have a drink with Bunny again. Oh, we had such a good time. And, and then it becomes almost an obsession. It's all I can think about. I can't wait to get out of here so I can go to the bar and hang out and be with your crowd, your newfound family, you know? Uh, so yeah, then I, I started drinking and hanging out at bars and doing drugs and, you know, chasing girls and doing the regular things, uh, it all fell apart pretty quickly. Michael says he never had a lot of friends or girlfriends. 
and he says his life took a turn for the worse shortly after a love at first sight encounter. I was 35 years old when I, you know, had my first, I met my first live-in girlfriend, uh, who I like, to, I like to say is like, when I saw her, uh, it's like seeing an angel, because it's weird. I, I just went to go meet somebody. I was living with some people at the time, and they said, hey, do you want to go to a friend's house for a barbecue and whatnot? I said, yeah, sure. And we're all sitting in the backyard waiting. I didn't even know who this friend was. I had no idea. They didn't tell me. They just said, come meet a friend. Uh, and so we, I was sitting in the backyard, and it was a sunny day. And I remember she came around the corner. She had a, a, a pink dress on, and, and her hair was bleached from the sun. And just, just the way she came around the corner, the sunlight was just shining on her. And uh, it was just like seeing an angel. Uh, the most amazing woman I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was all for it right away. But uh, unfortunately, I was not at a good place. I was still rot in alcohol and in denial about where I was and who I was. I was still running from all my problems, unaddressed, uh, made unaware. I, I was just doing what I thought was normal. Because I worked every day, because I paid my taxes, because I helped my parents out, I thought I was okay and I didn't have a problem. I didn't know how how emotionally damaged I was at the time. I didn't know how, how scarred and stressed out I was at the time. I, I, uh, I didn't know how much of a mess I was and how much of an alcoholic I was. I didn't know how deep I was in it. And I think that's what we tried to find in each other was some stability, uh, someone to trust, someone that, that wanted us, someone that, that could love us for who we were. And we both, but we both weren't ready. Right off the bat, you know, we were arguing all the time about little things, and uh, but we both wanted something so bad that we just stuck it out, and, and we just wanted it to work. And she just wanted someone to be around, and so did I. I think I think more than anything, we're just lonely uh, and tired of being lonely, and we just we just wanted each other. And so we hoped that things would, would work out. Michael says he wound up reliving his childhood, even though he'd always told himself that would never happen. I, I grew up breaking up fights and calling cops and getting in between people who are trying to tear each other apart and taking punches and slaps and having things thrown at me. And I, I grew up doing that. And I always told myself I would never do that. I was like, no, I'm never going to be like this. I don't want this for my family. And it's, it's crazy how life works, and it, it wound up being the exact same thing. We found ourselves intoxicated all the time, yelling all the time, arguing all the time, started throwing stuff at each other, pushing, shoving each other. Uh, we, just, we started hitting each other. Uh, and, you know... It was a really ugly thing, and it, it happened. But that's how I wound up getting incarcerated. I uh, wound up getting uh, arrested by the police and told I couldn't see her anymore, uh, which, of course, I didn't listen. <laughs> uh, kept going back, meeting up, uh, getting into the same thing, having 
the only thing we knew how to how to share was alcohol. So every time we met up, it was oh let's have some drinks together. It always turned out the same. I wound up uh, after two or three arrests, I wound up uh, going to the new remand center for six and a half months. Looking back now, Michael sees his time in remand as a gift, one of those twists and turns in the long winding road that led him to Hope Mission. Six and a half months where I didn't have to drink or smoke marijuana and I, I started learning about, uh, I was introduced to a guy there who has had a, a Bible, I guess a Bible study class, which I was hooked on right away because I just, I walked by one day, I stuck my head in there and I heard him talking about it. And he was breaking down a proverb and it made sense to me when I, when I heard it. I was like, wow, I never really picked up a Bible ever. I never looked at it. I went to Catholic schools my whole life and we went to church every Sunday, but I never, I just went, you know what I mean? Like I didn't, I didn't try to listen, I didn't hear, I just went because mom and dad said, this is where we're going on Sunday. So I, it was a painstake for me. I went to Catholic schools, they taught us religion, but I never paid attention. I sat at the back and doodled and failed every religion course I ever took. <laughs> so I had, no, I had no clue. And then when I heard him talk and I heard him break it down, I was like, oh, that's what that means. Oh, that makes sense to me. And I wanted more. So I got into the Bible, it was nice. Uh, I got my first taste of AA groups. I met a lot of really great people there. I, I only did one month in the general population, and then someone told me about uh, boot camp. And I've always been a physical guy. I've always been into basketball, soccer, tennis, uh, anything that was running and jumping. I, I loved it. I loved to run. I was on a cross-country team. I, I played everything I could. Uh, so as soon as I heard there was a boot camp, the lady asked me about it. She uh, asked me some questions, do I have heart problems? I said, no, do you have any health issues? I said, no, because I've always been healthy. Uh, she goes, there's gonna be physical activity of a high degree, uh, you have to be okay with that. I'm like, I'm okay with that. I, I'm looking for that. So I signed up and a week later, she came and they called my name, grab your stuff, you're going to boot camp. So I, I went to boot camp and it was, it sounds gonna sound weird, like you're in, you're in incarceration, but it was the best, was some of the best times of my life. My, my heart just warms just thinking about the, the camaraderie, the people there. It was nice to be a part of something where everybody's doing the same thing. Everybody's going the same direction. We all want to change our lives and we're all willing to do whatever we could. It was just like, uh, just the environment and, and the energy uh, you feel being around everyone there is welcoming, it was warming. Uh, it was inspiring. When Michael got out of jail, he felt like he had a second chance at life, but it didn't turn out the way he thought. And he attributes that to two mistakes, smoking marijuana again and neglecting his spirituality. When I got out, there was a Bible that I, somebody gave me when I was in there and I used to read it all the time and flip through it. I loved it because I was like, wow, this is, this is my Bible, this is for me. But when I got out, I threw it in the corner with the bag of the rest of my paperwork from, from incarceration, and that's where it sat. I never opened it up. I never looked at it again. I never went to church. I never did any of these things to reconnect uh, when I had been given such a gift when I was in there. Uh, I didn't use it. So those are the two biggest mistakes, and they led me back to my usual circle. I was arguing with my sister. I was showing up at her door 
drunk out of my mind, screaming, and you know, I, we had an actually a violent altercation. Uh, me and her husband at the time, and that was the last time I stayed there. I, she, of course, rightfully so, kicked me out. Uh, I got my own place again and stayed there for about a year until someone at work told me they needed a roommate. And uh, I kind of knew I wasn't ready because he had a, uh, a girlfriend and two kids. And I was like, I don't know if I want to be around children or a family setting. I, I'm drinking every day and hanging out here and up to my shenanigans. But it, uh, it happened. I wanted moving in there. Uh, I just, like I said, I kept doing things I did. I wound up getting kicked out of the place I was living at because I came home blackout drunk a few times and made a fool of myself in front of the, the kids. Thankfully, no one got hurt. There was no violence. It was just me being, to children, it's scary to see adults like that. So I obviously scared the kids and I didn't have the face or the fortitude to apologize to them. So I did what I usually do, I ran. I couldn't face it. So I just told them, I said, okay, uh, I won't be coming back there. I said, I'll come send somebody to pick up my stuff, but you, you can be rid of me. Uh, I just then struggled for the next week to try to find a quick place to, to move into. I couldn't. Uh, so when the time came uh, for the end of the month, I had no place to live. I was basically working homeless uh, for the last week or so. I slept at uh, the West Edmonton Mall Transit Center. I slept in a field once. I, I slept wherever I could, spent the night. One time I was blessed and the security hadn't closed all the doors in West Edmonton Mall. So I just checked the doors and opened. And there's two sets of doors. So I got in the first set of doors and I was like, oh, at least there's a lobby. Like maybe my luck's gonna continue. I tried the second set of doors, it opened. This is like at one, one in the morning. So I, I went into West Edmonton Mall, I, I walked right to the washroom, I locked myself in a stall and I went to sleep there. That was the last night that I had at my work because that day I went back to work. I told my boss, I said, I don't have a place to live, uh, so I guess I can't come to work anymore, I said, because I don't know how I'm going to get here. And just like that, Michael had nowhere to go. Before long, he called his sister for help. She agreed to put down one month's rent at an agency that she thought might be able to help him sort things out and find work in a place of his own. So she dropped me off there, gave me a, a duffel bag with uh, some goodies in it, some shower things and some things to eat. Uh, she bought me a meal card for a month, paid my rent for a month and said, here, this is it. She goes, I can't do much more. She goes, this is your shot. You got one month to, and then you're on your own. I said, okay. So I was, that was in Feb, end of February. She drops me off and says, okay, uh, March rent, here you go. You're here for the month of March and then it's up to you. Michael stayed there for three months. He found a job, but it only lasted a few weeks. Things went downhill from there. And a warning, in a minute, Mike shares with some detail about how close he came to completing suicide. Everything just hit me. I was like, man, I was so dejected about losing a job. I was, I didn't know where I was going to go and where my future was, and I didn't know what was going to happen. 
I was drinking, of course. I mean, there's a lot of drinking there too. So I started drinking a lot. Uh, I wound up, during one of my blackout tirades, I wound up uh, trying to put my hand through the security glass at the, at the front desk. Uh, I was yelling at the lady apparently. and uh, So I wound up getting kicked out of there in the same week as I lost my job. So again, I'm back to, don't know where I'm gonna go, don't know what I'm gonna do. I didn't want to call my sister and tell her that this had happened because she was believing me to try to make it work. I told her I would. So there I am. I don't have no job, have no place. Uh, lost all my stuff during one of my drunken blackouts. I lost my bag, which had all my paperwork in it and uh, all my numbers that I needed. So I didn't know what I was going to do. So uh, I wound up going down to River Valley, and this is probably the second time in my life that I really contemplated suicide. I actually, I actually wrote letters uh, to my sister. I wrote a letter to my ex-girlfriend, and I, 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 wrote a, I wrote a letter to my, to my brother, I think, and to my old boss. I wrote letters and I said, I'm sorry that I, I did all these things. I'm sorry that I, you know, screwed up things for you guys. And uh, I tried the best I could and, and I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And, uh, I went down to the, I left these letters at the front desk and I, after I punched out, I left these to the front desk. I gave them my keys and uh, I went down to the river valley. I had an old disposable razor that I took with me. sat on top of the stairs for a bit, just trying to think things through. Uh, and I remember I, I took the I took the razor apart. Uh, so I got that little thin blade and I just wanted to see if it would cut. So I just like sliced my thumb and it cut and it bled. And I was like, okay, part two is just to do it here. A uh, quick pinch and it'll be over. I can just lie here. And, with the beautiful view of the of the ocean or uh, the uh, river valley, and as the sun going down, I can, it's a warm day. It was warm out. I can just lie here and then let it all go. Uh, it's not. It's. It wasn't an easy thing. Like I struggled with that for a bit. I sat there for about an hour, and then I wanted to. I wanted to finish my letter as I was writing uh, one last letter because I wanted them to find me. I didn't want them just to find me and be another body that they don't know what's happened. So I wanted to have a letter on me that was explaining what happened and that I had given up and that I had enough. So halfway right through writing that letter, uh, my pen died. So I was like, well, I want to finish this letter. I don't want them just to find me and not know anything. Determined to finish his final letter, Michael went back to the agency where he'd been staying the one he'd just been kicked out of, to get a new pen and a cup of coffee. And as he sat down to finish his letter, the police showed up. Staff had called it in after reading the letter he left for them, and Michael spent the night in hospital. The next morning, he assured them that he was not going to harm himself, and they let him go. And that's how Michael ended up on the streets, with no home and no hope. I felt like I had to suffer. I was so ridden with shame and guilt that I felt, that's why I said I felt like I deserved this. I just want to lie here and I want to suffer for as long as possible because 
because of the horrible things I've done in my life, because I, f I felt so bad about this, the physical abuse uh, with, with my, my significant other, uh, because I felt bad about people I've hurt. I felt bad about things I threw away and things I missed out on. And I just felt such remorse for everything. I was like, I want to lay here and I want to suffer for as long as possible because I deserve to. That's where I was at. And I think it wasn't too long after that was when I was having a breakfast at the, at the Hope Mission. And that's when the, the worker came by. And he just walked up, uh, asked, sat down beside me and said, how, how, are you, how are you today? And I did the same thing. I told him, I said, just leave me alone. He goes, well, what's, what's happening? He goes, well, what's going on? I said, never mind, it doesn't matter. I said, just, I said, go talk to somebody else. I said, I don't want to talk to anybody. And he, he wouldn't leave me alone. He kept saying, well, what's, what's going on? Well, how, how are you doing? What, what's happening? And I said, I'm, I, I think I said something like, I'm, I'm garbage. I said, just, just leave me be. And he goes, what do you mean garbage? He goes, why, why do you say that? And he wouldn't stop. I wound up opening up to him and I told him about some of the things I've been through and how I got there and how bad things have gotten. I told him, I said, I'm an alcoholic. I said, my, everybody's gone. I, I said, I've, I, I told him about the abuse with, with my old girlfriend and, and how, how, how much it, it was ashamed. I was ashamed of it. I said, I had nothing left. I said, nobody cares. I said, I'm, there's no, I have nothing to live for. I said, I just, I just want to be left alone. And then he, he asked me, he goes, do you believe in God? And I said, I said, I don't know, man. I said, I believe in God because I've had my own experiences with it. I, I did believe in it. I, I did know that there was a God. That's, at the time, that's, I knew there was. I, said, I told him, I said, I believe in God. I said, but I don't think he sees me or, or hears me anymore. I said, I don't think he wants to hear me. I said, God's not going to hear me. I said, I, I turned my back on him. I said, I lied to him, to his face. I said, I, there's no way he's going to help me or even care about me. I said, I don't think he gives a damn about me anymore. I said, nobody does. And then he, uh, he started telling me about uh, the love of Jesus. And he says, well, Jesus forgives. He says, no matter what you think you've done, he says, uh, Jesus can, is capable of forgiving you of all of that. He says, he says you can have forgiveness. You can have, you can have a blessed life again. He says, you just you have to believe in it. He says, you have to go to God and you have to believe in Him. Then he told me about he told me about breakout. We talked about that for a bit. Uh, and after I agreed to go, he said, "Would you would you want to go?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I'm like what? Well, what are my options? Basically, I said, I don't have anything else. I don't have anywhere else to go. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go. Uh, he said, okay, good. He shook my hand and he asked me, uh, I remember this, I'll remember this for the rest of my life. He asked me, he goes, can I give you a hug? And I, I said, yeah, sure. And then he hugged me and it was just like one of the greatest, warmest feelings I've ever had, like just this total stranger. And he said, can I give you a hug? He hugged me and I cried in his arms for, for a while. Uh, and I'll never forget that.
I've I've been there I've been there for seven months now and I've been sober for seven months. No marijuana, no cigarettes, no alcohol. I've been immersed in the program. Uh, I've just been enjoying every single minute of it. Uh, it hasn't all been good. I mean, there's there's days where the old wounds are still there, right? You're still deprogramming. You're still coming out of it, uh, and you have to face these things. I mean, that's part of the program. Is you, you can't just run. You can't just say, "Okay, here's my start. Let's go." They make you. They urge you to to go back and and, and revisit these these moments in your life and and and, and your life altogether and and try to understand uh, where things went so wrong inside of you, uh, what led you to addiction. They, they try to get you to understand why you're having troubles monitoring uh, your emotions, uh, your mental damage, and, and, and any possibilities that could have contributed to, to you know, your, your basic downfall. Like, and you look into all that, and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes because you're so ashamed and guilt-ridden to go back and look at these things again. It's, it, it's, it's not easy. But it gets easier every single time you do it. I mean, I used to never be able to talk about my abuse uh, towards my significant other. I just, it was impo almost impossible for me to talk about it because I would just break down in tears and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't talk about it. It's 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 relieving and empowering today to be able to talk with it, talk about it with somebody without being a you know a mess, without coming undone. I can I can look at it now and it's I'm not. Of course, I wish it didn't happen, but I I'm happy that I'm not that person anymore. And it's not just something I think. I don't just think I'm not that. I know I'm not that person anymore. Uh, having Having been reintroduced to my to my spirituality has been a big part of it. Uh, they they really they really introduce you reintroduce you again to your higher power and establish that and they make sure you understand that uh, all things are powerful are all things are possible through Christ if if you believe. Uh, prayer prayer has become part of my daily regiment again, and what's different about this program? then what I went through with incarceration is it's on you. No one's forcing you. you it's voluntary. You can wa walk out anytime you want and say, no, it's not for me. No, I don't want to do this. What's different and more empowering is that it's up to you. We have our own monies and that we're in charge of. Nobody's holding it and saying, okay, well, I'm only going to give you this much and you have to do this and that. It's on you. They leave it on you. They say, you have to learn to manage your own life and we trust you to do that that's a big thing uh, having freedoms you can go anywhere at any time if you want like there's there's limited limited uh, places you you're allowed to go unless you have you know a they have a buddy system but you can still go you can still disappear somewhere if you want to and you can go get a drink or pick up something on the corner if you want to it's it's up it's up to you to, to grab your hold of your life and, and take it. I've, I've gotten in touch with uh, the church around the corner here, which is a great church, our Father's house. Go there every Sunday. Uh, I hardly miss a Sunday. 
at the YMCA whenever I can, three, four nights a week. Uh, it's a good group. We've got a good core group of guys there. We all kind of help each other out. It's recovery, and uh, we're just we're all just trying to make it now. And it's I kind of have that same feeling like I had when I was in Reman. Like I'm I'm finally we're on a group of guys and we're all doing the same thing. We all want the same thing. We're moving the same way. The work experience has, has been really good because we all get jobs. Uh, you can be on you know the outside door crew. You can be helping out with uh, the meals at the the the, the mission hall there. Uh, you can be working in the Herb Jamison itself. Uh, it's good to still be around the community because it's it's nice that it's all very real. You can still see where it can go and how quickly it can get there. And talking to some of the people, you can understand like how stuck, how stuck some of them are. And, you, you you just you have an understanding about it. You know, I, I used to drive through this neighborhood uh, with my dad. Uh, he'd drive through and we'd look for my brother. And I remember just being terrified. Uh, I remember thinking, oh my God, don't stop at this red light because we're gonna get mauled, we're gonna get you know robbed and whatnot. But being around here for the last while, it's not like that. Uh, nobody's super malicious. Uh, they're all just broken people, either running or hiding from something, or uh, there's a lot of mental uh, mental illnesses. So I, I've met some, I've met some people that I'm, I'm, I would have never thought I'd I'd, I'd want to meet or be happy to have met, and there's some people that I've really been happy to have met, and they just need help. super happy every day I count my blessings every time something good happens I take it right to the Lord I go down to my room and I I pray and I say thank you thank you for this blessing thank you for providing thank you for everything you are to me and I feel inspired the more I, the more I talk the more I bring to, to God the more I trust him uh, the more he's active in my life uh, and man I look back and it's like it could have all been over down by the river valley and, and it wasn't and I'm just super happy to be here. God's always been there. He's just been waiting for me to listen. Uh, I, I remember from that gentleman who was doing the, 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 the breaking down the Proverbs when I was in uh, Reman. He's the, one of the Proverbs, uh, I can't remember which one now, but it's gonna bum me out a little bit about it for a little bit, but I, I remember something about uh, said I'm shouting I, I'm yelling at you I'm, I'm talking to you from the streets I'm shouting at you from the rooftops uh, why won't you hear me or something to those tunes and the way he explained it to me uh, he said he said that's God active in our lives he says you can't always see it and you can't always know it if you don't know what to look or to listen for he says but that's God saying I'm yelling at you I'm, he's, he goes, he actually said my name, he goes, Mike, he goes, Mike, I'm yelling at you. He's like, I'm waiting, why won't you hear me? He's, he said, God's always here. He's just screaming, he's begging for us to, to turn to and come to him. And, and that's, I look back in through my life, uh, I look at that pen dying, uh, I look at certain times where 
I look at my incarceration in itself, you know, God was trying to stop me from my, my ways and, and he said, you need a break, Mike. We're gonna, I'm sorry, you're not gonna like this, but we're gonna just take you out of the situation and you need to hear what I'm laying down, you know? So I look at my incarceration as, as, a, as a calling out from God. He was trying so, he's been trying so hard in my life to get me to, to straighten out. I just didn't know how to listen or, or I haven't been listening. I wasn't capable or I'm not sure, but he's always been there. And, and that's the thing about being in breakout. You have a lot of time to, to think and go back and revisit things. And like, it's just like a connect the dots sort of thing. I can go back now and be like, I see what's been happening here. This has been all leading up to a continuous trying to get me out, trying to, trying to get me to hear, trying to bring me to senses. And it's, it's happened all throughout my life. I, I would like to get as many people in there as possible. I try to tell people about it uh, every chance I get if they'll give me a few minutes to listen. I try to tell them about it. I actually have the pleasure, uh, I say pleasure because it is a pleasure of getting uh, a friend of mine, we both found ourselves out on the street. I'd see him every once in a while, uh, but we didn't really run together, but I'd just see him every once in a while. And after I got in, he was still bouncing around. I, I, I'd see him walking around and I'd, I'd always ask him how he's doing, or he'd always stop me and be like, hey, Mike, how's it going? And I'd say, oh, I'm doing good. I'm over at Breakout. I said, I'm doing great. And then I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm you know, got a tent at the River Valley or I'm, or I'm just, you know, just hanging out or whatever. And it's like, okay, there was no judgment or anything. I just kept on hoping that maybe he'd see it, that I was doing good. And uh, maybe, maybe I'd tell him a little bit about the program and what it's like over there. And he started getting curious about it. He started asking, well, what, what, what's it like over there? I said, oh, you know, this is what it's like. This is what, what we're doing. I said, we're taking classes every day. and. They said, we'll get on, they'll hook you up with Alberta Works. So I said, they'll, they'll make sure you're, you're squared away. They'll, they'll get your ID back if that's a thing. I was like, you can really get things going. I said, I'm, I'm working out, I'm going to the gym. I said, I'm feeling better. And he goes, yeah, you're looking more healthy. He goes, you look good. He says, yeah, maybe I'll think about it. And this went on for a couple of times, you know, and then after, after long enough, uh, he must have had a pretty hard couple of nights. I saw him and he was looking pretty rough. And uh, same thing, I just told him how, how things were going and I asked him, kept asking him again. I said, why don't you come check it out? I said, I think, you, I think you'd like it. I mean, it's better than out here, right? And then uh, I wasn't expecting it. All of a sudden one day, there he is, going, walking across with one of the counselors and he had his bags and stuff. I'm like, yay! You made it, you decided to come in. Hey, he goes, yeah, and he's still with me there today. He, he's been there for about six months now too, and he's still with me. He's actually my regular gym partner. I got him uh, signed up at the YMCA and we go there all the time. Uh, and it's, it's, really, it's really cool. Um, and I want, I want to do that as, for as much many people as I can. can't you can't put a you can't put a gauge on on how 
incredible it is to to have a second chance at life. A, a, a meal can lead to something incredible. Uh, it's what started with me. One meal in the hall met me up with one worker who stopped and cared enough to ask about how I was doing, led me to coming to the program, uh, led me to getting in touch with God and my maker and led to me being grateful and finding a purpose for my life and meaning to who and what I am. You can't put a price tag on that. I'd, I'd say, I'd say give, give, give whatever, give as openly and as freely as you can because the amount of lives you can make a difference in uh, is immeasurable. To be, to be on the street and lost, alone and scared, and also having to worry about what you're gonna eat and where you're gonna go to not have any place uh, is something that nobody should have to know. Uh, so like the re what they provide, giving people food for their life so they can survive another day so that maybe they can find another way uh, what you're doing is saving lives, uh, guiding people, giving people a chance who, are, who can find another chance. Uh, and a chance is sometimes all somebody needs is the difference between going out and going on. That's what your gift provides. It gives someone like Michael the hope to go on. Michael's story reminds me how powerful hope is and how hope really does begin with a meal. And you can provide that hope, that meal, for someone today by going to hopemission.com. For just $27 a month, you can become a Hearts of Hope donor and provide monthly meals, care, and programs to vulnerable people in need. We've relaunched Hope Stories, so please give the podcast a rating and a review and tell your friends. The truth is, these hope stories are your stories. They are truly not possible without your support. Thank you for your care and compassion for providing hope to men and women, children and youth, families and communities across Alberta. I'm Brenton Dreger. Thanks for listening to Hope Stories. <laughs>